This week on the show, we have a EuroBSDCon 2022 first time BSD conference visitors report, Red Hat's OpenShift versus previous DJL, running a Docker host under OpenBSD using BFD, the history of sending signals to Unix process groups, toolchain adventures, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 479, OpenBSD Docker host, recorded on the 19th of October, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow for various ways how you can support this show. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. We are looking a little bit back before we look a little bit further ahead. Uh, first, looking back with a nice conference report about EuroBSDCon 2020 in Vienna. Uh, and it's titled, My First BSD Conference and How They Are Different. Ah, I remember this person. Oh, Here we I go. don't think I actually met them. Yeah. <laughs> I might have. I met many people that day. So anyway, they start off. I've been to my share of IT conferences, both as a regular attendee and as speaker. However, I've never been to any BSD conferences until last weekend when I went to EuroBSDCon in Vienna. Obviously, this post is a, we're a little slow getting to this post because it's been a couple of weekends, but uh, great to see when people post these because as they're going to talk about, it encourages people to go. So they say, chances are that you've heard uh, that these conferences are different and oh boy, they are. Do yourself a favor and go see for yourself. If you've got any chance of doing so, do it. This is a long article in which I hope to give readers interested in this past uh, EuroBSDCon a good overview of what the conference was like for a complete newcomer. Uh, be my guest and join me in reliving some of my experiences uh, from that week. So, my long way to EuroBSDCon. While I don't remember exactly how I found out about the newly started BSD Now podcast, I had been a Linux user at the time and my exposure to BSD was minimal, I started watching it basically from day one. I still believed in the popular BSD is dying myth and was sure that it would be over after a couple of episodes, because nobody uses BSD anymore, right? Well, it turns out that I was wrong, and I couldn't be happier about it. Uh, having started in late 2013, close to 500 episodes have aired since they delivered the, the latest BSD news every week. I've long since switched camps and became a FreeBSD user. While there are multiple reasons for this, the podcast has certainly helped me during the transition time, and way beyond that, mind you. It was also where I learned that BSD conferences did indeed exist, such as EuroBSDCon 2013, which had been in Malta. And Alan made things sound pretty appealing. Being a BSD guy, he's certainly overselling them, right? <laughs> no. Uh, wrong again. While I had the feeling that my initial thoughts had not been exactly right for a couple of years now, I finally actually know. And the one thing that I regret is that I didn't get a chance to find out earlier. Alan and Chris had me covered uh, about EuroBSDCon 2014 back in Bulgaria, in 2015 when it was in Sweden, among other conferences. In 2016, and after using FreeBSD more and more in private and at work, I figured I should probably attend EuroBSDCon. That year it took place in Serbia and I asked a Serbian coworker if he'd like to go. He was a Ubuntu guy but enjoyed IT conferences in general, so he said yes. Then about a week before we went, wanted to buy our tickets and book a hotel, his mother passed away, so he had to fly uh, somewhere else instead. 
But of course, any former plans were moot, and it didn't feel right for me to go alone after that. Then came 2017 in France. I didn't have time as we were in the middle of moving house. 2018 was in Romania, and September was my second daughter uh, being born. And so, nope, that wasn't happening either. Uh, so I had been, you know, unlucky for a while and I didn't get, uh, manage to make it. Good reason. So I really wanted to go in 2019, especially since the place uh, that it was hosted was Lillehammer in Norway. And I've learned a little Norwegian just for fun in university, but I'd never actually got to go there. So I planned for it and then uh, my car needed expensive repairs, meaning that I was going to miss it again. And then I learned that 2020 was going to be in Austria and I declared now or never. Uh, things couldn't have been more ideal for me with the location being uh, you know, a neighboring German speaking country. And then what happens? COVID hits. Uh, all of us and all the conferences is canceled. Uh, 2021 saw the conference, but it was virtual. And, you know, finally, 2022 was finally going to be in Austria in person for reals with all the pandemic craziness. I decided that my resolution was still valid and I was going to go. A certainly dedication to that con to attend EuroBSD con there. The ramp yeah. up is quite long. Uh, my story was kind of similar. Like I had heard about BSD can and planned to go for like two, three or four years and never made it. And then one year I'm like, damn it, we're going. And I went and then I went to like every conference after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here, at least for BSD can and for, yeah. for Euro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I got my leave from work, booked a hotel and got tickets for the conference and for the train ride to get there. It wasn't really what I wasn't really sure what to expect being the new one who doesn't know anybody after all there were some pretty big names among the speakers and while for me being mr nobody there totally was no chance to talk to any of them spoiler i've been so wrong once again uh that would at least mean that i would probably be some awesome talks finally an assumption that turned out to be right so i figured i'd just enjoy the talks and if i got to strike up a handful of conversations that'd be a nice plus so neither shy nor extremely outgoing but not knowing how things are handled, and I didn't want to leave a bad impression. Uh, so then, talks about walking among demigods. I'd been rather lucky because right before the second talk, something happened that ultimately proved that things were different here. On Linux conferences, I got used to low profile because in addition to the friendly and open people, there are always those that just let you know rather bluntly that you're not in their league, as if you don't already know. I was a moment earlier when I got to the room, so I opened my backpack to get a drink. During that moment, an older man with a cane took a seat next to me. Well, we all spread out due to the situation with COVID, but nobody would sit between us even though there were two or three seats. Then he started a conversation like a completely natural thing. Well, thinking about it, it is, but uh, unfortunately there's this strange culture where that might seem weird to us. We have to uh, learn that. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> even if it hadn't been for the masks that make it a bit harder to recognize people that you only know from pictures or maybe videos i would have uh i would have checked the name tag on his badge and lord almighty i found myself talking to kirk mchusick <laughs> in case you're new to the bsds imagine the same situation as uh you know Linus torvalds or somebody but nicer dr mchusick had been around bsd basically forever uh he's the man who conceived and implemented the UFS file system that's been used by every commercial Unix vendor uh, before anything else ever existed. He is responsible for the original BSD, not some BSD, but BSD uh, releases at UC Berkeley, taking over when Bill Joy, uh, who had done the earlier ones, left to co-found Sun Microsystems. 
We talked about a couple of things and being interested in Unix history. I had the opportunity to ask him about the early days of BSD. This was incredible, encouraged me to just uh, step up to some people whose names I recognized. One such person was uh, Hiroki Sato. I remember that he was responsible for creating the original tech uh, port in FreeBSD, and I thought that I'd just thank him for it. Uh, tech Live is a beast. I know that too well as I did the work to get it to work in Raven ports, and it took me almost a year to feel confident enough to decide on a packaging scheme for its many, many components. Uh, and he goes on and tells a whole story about that. Uh, and he says, there has not been a single exception for me. Whoever I talked to turned out to be perfectly approachable and very down to earth. What a contrast to what I experienced uh, previously. My interest seems to be rather niche, even in a niche family of operating systems that are the BSDs. So I ended up talking most, uh, mostly going to talks in track three. This had the benefit of usually being able to talk to the speaker right afterwards, as most people were going to the other tracks and those who went to the same often heard uh, in the hallway having their own conversations. So then he details what he did on the first day, uh, including some of the COVID precautions that the conference had taken, uh, which we were very grateful for. And there was you know, a great rundown of all the different uh, talks that he went to, including a bunch of other stuff. Uh, then he talks about the social event. Uh, when I decided to book my ticket, I hesitated to go to the social event too. It was another 80 euros and I didn't know what it would be. What I had heard about previous social events sounded nice though. And fortunately, I decided that I would do it. I might as well go all in. I'm pretty happy that I made this decision as it turned out to be a really nice evening. This year's social event was in fact something truly special. One of the conference's sponsor was the actual city of Vienna. And so we were invited to the Rathaus, the town hall, uh, for dinner. The building is beautiful and certainly a place to visit if you ever come to the city. And the interior is not too shabby either. Uh, we went to a large room with a nicely decorated ceiling, among other things and paintings of Vienna's past mayors. Uh, a politician held a short speech and delivered a word of welcome from the current mayor. And then there was live piano music uh, and a nice standing dinner. Yeah. Oh, wow. And he mentions talking to us at certain points uh, during the conference as well. So, yeah. And that's certainly a nice uh, introduction, not, not not because of us or, or exclusively, but the whole uh, BSD space and how nice the people were. Yeah, that's certainly a good introduction to the, yeah, how a BSD conference is in general. Yeah, actually, I just happened to scroll to that part here. Uh, at one time, I found myself in queue for food right uh, behind Alan Jude, uh, who I had not been able to catch during the day. I told him that I was an active listener to the podcast and appreciated their effort a lot. We talked. Uh, for a few moments and he hinted that there would be another podcast coming in the near future. I'm not going to spoil things here, but it sounds quite interesting. Yep. And there's also, if you search for my name, I'm also, I had a conversation there and he fondly remembers that, especially since we talked in German because we could. And so that is uh, also mentioned. Yeah. Very, very pleasant to meet people this way. I mean, a lot of people approach us at conferences and say, Hey, I'm listening to the podcast and yeah, it's nice to hear from the audience. Right. So definitely make the effort. Yeah. Well, having been this same kind of shy person before, uh, it kind of helped me at the conferences. Suddenly everybody knew who I was and was a bit more comfortable coming up and talking to me because, you know, we kind of have the connection of, of the podcast. Uh, and it meant I got to meet a lot more people and uh, it increased the value I got out of the conferences because I didn't just go to the talks and only talk to a couple of people or, or only people that came up and talked to me because... 
suddenly people would come up and talk to me. Yeah, and so he details all the interesting stuff uh, from the second day as well, and then has some closing thoughts. On my way to the closing session, I met Martin Matuska, uh, who is the author of MFS BSD and helps maintain ZFS in FreeBSD. Uh, then we were shown some statistics, uh, like the number of attendees, their country of origin, and so on. And of course, Benedict passed off Drop the BSD Goat over to Tom Jones so that our favorite plush toy can travel to Scotland. Uh, and then there was a charity auction. Then finally, we got the info on where next year's conference will be. And finally, with a sad voice, Henning Bauer had to announce that that was the end of the conference. EuroBSDCon 2022 was not just another conference for me, it was different. What did it feel like? Let me put it this way. I found myself a second family. Aww. I'm not even exaggerating. Now I know for myself that Alan's once expressed in his words as, these are my people. I'm grateful that I finally was able to attend, and it was so worth it to do it despite not knowing whether things would work in September because of the COVID situation and the fact that I could change at any time. There's exactly one downside for me. Now I've got to explain to my wife why I have to go to Portugal next year in September. <laughs> well, bring her along. That's certainly a good uh, reason. <laughs> I know that's how a lot of people got to go to the one in Paris. <laughs> right? Yeah. They, it's also fun for the uh, you know significant others. Not the conference, but uh, you know the nice place where we are. Okay, so thanks for this nice little uh, conference report. Very uh, good to read about the good experiences there. And next up is a, another article from Clara Systems about Red Hat's OpenShift versus FreeBSD jails. Uh, it starts with FreeBSD jails can be considered the start of modern containerization and process separation, but it can be hard to understand how FreeBSD jail technologies such as VNet relate to modern container products. So <laughs> the first uh, headline is uh, container terminology is a bit of a mess. Container terminology is an unfortunate soup of names, products, and company names mixed together with actual technologies. Sometimes the same term can be all of these three things, and sometimes it can be a rebranding for a modification to one component. When looking at modern microservice platforms from the top, it is very easy to get lost in the details of the distributed architecture and become confused about which of the core pieces make up the code that is run. So there's a little uh, section about what is OpenShift for people who have never heard about that. Red Hat's OpenShift is an enterprise Kubernetes platform designed to work in open hybrid cloud environments. OpenShift offers a flexible environment for day one, installation and setup, and day two, ongoing maintenance and updates, operations, tasks, and is flexible over a range of hosting environments. And it's a high-level tool for managing an entire fleet of microservices, but it's only one building block in the tower of technologies that, has, uh, or that allows operators to have control of clusters or resources. Okay, what's the building block containers here? The power in a modern microservice platform comes from both its lowest building blocks and from the tooling that enables automated deployment and management of resources across a cluster of compute resources. The low-level components of the microservice platform are tied to the operating system's implementation of them, but as we move up to the management layers, these can be decoupled from the lower levels and the technologies and applied across a larger range of lower-level primitives. Whereas the FreeBSD jails implement operating system level virtualization in the form of a separate environment that can be created as a process on the host system. Coupled with VNet, jails can be given an entirely isolated network stack. Jails with VNets can be created a very minimal environment, or they can be given access to more of the host's information, which is a powerful range of configuration styles which can be managed by the sysadmins and architectures. And they talk a bit more about operating system level virtualization and the way of... Um, doing it on Linux, 
Then there's a building block about cluster management. Treating containers as discrete components allows an explosion in the number of services that can be provided by a single host, whether that host is running on bare metal or is a virtual machine itself. With a geometric increase in the number of tasks that the host can be put to, it becomes a challenge to deploy and run services and to manage the hosts that the services run on effectively. And the power of microservice environments comes from their simple deployment and the ability to scale up and down dynamically. Individual service instances can be created and destroyed as needed without the platform as a whole suffering. So uh, such a scheduler is Kubernetes. And uh, uh, previously, Kubernetes containers were created by the Docker tooling. But as uh, version 1.0, uh, yeah, 1.0, no, 1.2, actually, the zero uh, the container format has moved to container runtime interface CRI-based images. Then there's a big block about enterprise Kubernetes platform, what that is about, and the whole OpenShift in that. Uh, and then there's the section on jails versus OpenShift. OpenShift is a high-level interface for managing a large number of container instances, offering the ability to create and manage all of the microservices for a large organization. FreeBSD jails are a core technology, similar to the lower layers operating beneath OpenShift. It's entirely possible for someone to replace the lower layers of a Kubernetes platform, the containers with FreeBSD technologies. There are, in fact, several projects that do this already, such as Pot, a FreeBSD cluster manager that we have discussed in a different article. At the time of writing, FreeBSD is getting much closer to being able to work in Linux container environments. Support for an OCI-compatible runtime for FreeBSD jails is improving rapidly. Uh, this work will enable development and operations workflows using FreeBSD jails as a component in the same way that Linux containers are. Once this is possible, it becomes easier and easier to add the ability to run native FreeBSD containers, and the infrastructure is almost ready. OpenShift and FreeBSD jails are technologies that work at a very different layer. Jails serve the same purpose as containers, not much higher level management systems like OpenShift itself. There is a possible and exciting future where OpenShift is able to drive FreeBSD jails and the necessary infrastructure is getting close to working. Once that infrastructure is complete, it will be possible to extend OpenShift with more platforms, improving diversity and making high-quality FreeBSD tools available in microservice architectures. And of course, this article was written by Tom, in case you are wondering what Tom does in the other weeks where Alan and I are recording. <laughs> Though he probably has other hobbies as well. Okay, news roundup in this episode is talking about the history of sending signals to Unix process groups. Yeah, so this is another great blog post uh, from our friend Chris Seibemann. Uh, he says, all Unix processes are members of some process group. Process groups go very far back in Unix. They're present in at least v4 Unix. However, they aren't really process groups in the modern sense. As we can see from the relevant procstruct field being called p underscore ttyp. Instead, they were used primarily to send signals to your terminal processes when various things happened. Uh, and the process group number was the address of your struct TTY for that terminal. In v7 Unix, uh, proc.h changed that field to p underscore p group, and it now called it the process group leader. However, there's still no way to send a signal to a process group from user code, although various tools know about the idea of process groups and we'll report them to the user level, uh, like PSTAT on Solaris uh, or PS on BSD, which gives the information in the traditional Unix approach of reading kernel memory. 
V7 is also where the process group number became the process ID of the first process to open a serial TTY after it had been closed. In V6, uh, the PS tool is aware of the TTYP uh, struct member and uses it to report the controlling terminal, but I don't think it prints it. In any case, the specific value of the process group in V6 isn't very meaningful since it's still just the address of a kernel structure instead of the process ID of the group leader. The inability to send signals to process groups changed, apparently, uh, independently in System 3 and 4BSD. In System 3, the kill documents uh, the modern approach of sending a signal to the process group by using a negative PID in the kill command. System 3 also has an explicit get pgroup system call and supports set pgroup. According to the intro man page, System 3 claims to differentiate between a process group and a TTY group. However, looking at the proc.h only has the v7p uh, underscore pgroup and the code to do things like handling control c uses that same pgroup uh, via signal. I don't know enough to say why System3 decided to let process group change and be exposed explicitly. More interestingly, in 4BSD, the reason for a change is much simpler, because 4BSD introduced the concept of job control. Job control intrinsically involves multiple process groups, which require exposing them to the user level code and providing user level code with a way to send signals to an entire process group. As I mentioned in yesterday's entry, 4BSD implements the ability to send or to signal a process group in a different way from System 3. Although 4BSD has a separate kill PG uh, function that calls itself a system call, the actual implementation just uses kill system call with a signal number negated instead of the process ID. By 4.1C BSD, there is actually a kill PG system call, although the kern underscore sig.c calls it temporary. Uh, only in 4.3 BSD does the behavior of negative PIDs appear in the man page for kill. And even then, the man page says that it's for compatibility with System 5 and not necessarily a BSD feature. 4.3 BSD is also where the kill system call stops supporting the 4BSD behavior of sending signals to process groups instead of PIDs through the negative signal number. Before I started down this rabbit hole, I would have assumed that you could send signals to process groups as far back as at least V7, and that would have been done in a modern way. I wouldn't have guessed that signaling process groups was developed separately in both AT&T and BSD, and that they initially used very different APIs. Since I just looked it up, POSIX standardized both KillPG and the modern version of Kill. Uh, you can, of course, implement your own KillPG through a POSIX standard Kill, so you don't need both uh, as actual system calls. It is uh, always interesting to, to learn some of the history behind this and just how things uh, happened all different and out of order compared to what you might expect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in a bit more modern era things and continuing a little bit connecting to the Clara article here, we have found a blog post about running a Docker host under OpenBSD using VMD. And uh, this goes uh, like a tutorial. The OpenBSD virtual machine daemon works pretty well with Linux VMs nowadays, they write. This was time for me to see if I could replace the Synology Docker service with some Docker host provided by VMD. So to start with setting up the virtual machine's environment, they're currently running OpenBSD 7.1 AMD64. Uh, read the man page to ensure commands are still valid at the time of reading. Uh, good uh, advice here. Okay, first enable VMD. Uh, this is rcctl enable VMD and start VMD. Okay, then all the VMs created uh, could go to a dedicated place. So creating a directory opt VM, change into that directory. 
and they're using Alpine Linux as the Docker host and use the virtual image for installation. So they download that, uh, Alpine 3.16.2. Uh, and they already have a bridge and vEther interface for most other purposes. VMs will be added to the bridge to gain network access. I don't want to filter on the tab interface of each VM. So the pfconf file has to be modified. There's a pass on tab uh, in there. All right, not too difficult. And then create the VM and install the Alpine Linux. So they provide the config for that, which is VMCTL's configuration for a QCAL2 Docker container or Docker image. All right, then next up, the bootloader detects COM parameters, boots the OS and gets you to the prompt. Read the user handbook and proceed to installation. The process is quite straightforward. It shows the sysk disk layout and there we have a well, successful Alpine Linux in the box. Setup Alpine uh, is done. Installation is successful. Complete. Please reboot. And power off does uh, shutdown. Modify vm.conf by commenting disable and reload vmd to restart the vm automatically. Then setting up the Docker host, connect to the vm using SSH to finish the configuration. And looking for Docker in the Alpine Linux packages repository, it shows the repo list has to be updated. Okay, they provide also how to do that. Enable the Docker management for non-run user by using add group myself or your user into the Docker group and have Docker start by default. And that's basically it. Test the Docker service is another thing. Run a simple test container to ensure everything works properly. Uh, like Docker run hello world, because why not? And here you get the nice and familiar hello Docker message. Docker image LS also shows the hello world is now uh, in the repository and has been in this case created 11 months ago, but uh, this seems to be working as expected. Manage Docker from OpenBSD. Running Docker using OpenBSD's VMD is great, but managing Docker from the OpenBSD workstation is even greater. Install the Docker CLI package and let the user environment to target the Docker host or set the user environment. Then run the test container to ensure it works remotely and properly. So you do package underscore add docker dash CLI and then export your Docker host into an environment variable and run Docker PS and Docker run hello dash world. As an example, an InfluxDB container can be run this way. Connect to the Docker host to prepare things. And this means a dedicated storage directory with specific permissions limited to a dedicated user. And that's also detailed. And back on the workstation, you populate it and run the container with Docker poll, in this case, InfluxDB 1.8. And it's downloading nicely. And after that's done, Docker PS-A lists that Docker as a new image there. The InfluxDB service can now be accessed from TCP Docker host, in this case, 8086 port. And I can now stop the Docker service on my Synology and only use OpenBSD to play with containers. Very nice. Very good that people can, should be able to follow this tutorial from start to finish and get their own Docker adventures going. Yep. And next we have some Q3 2022 toolchain adventures from Frederick Kembas uh, working on package source. He says, this is the sixth post in my toolchain adventure series. And he has links to the previous ones. In package source land, I updated binutils to version 2.39 and mold, one of the other linkers, uh, to 1.31, 1.40, 1.41, and 1.42, and then patch elf uh, up to version 0.15, and finally the paxutils up to 
regarding OpenBSD, we improved the LLVM-prof data uh, for the profiling into the base system in early July. So I took the opportunity to uh, propose importing LLVM-COV as well. This was accepted and has now been committed, which will allow uh, producing reports from coverage data without having to install the dev slash LLVM port. I also submitted a binutils port with the stated goal of having an up-to-date version of the GNU binary utilities. As such, uh, it expects uh, AS, the assembler, which you can get from devel slash GAS to get the GNU version, and GNU LD. This is intended to replace the aging version we have in the base system, which is binutils 2.17, released back in 2006, which is the last version under the GPLv2 license. All installed utilities have a G prefix pretended to them because they're the GNU versions. After importing it, I noticed packages didn't build anymore on OpenBSD ARM64 and OpenBSD ARMv7, so I got uh, the chance to send patches upstream to add OpenBSD's ARM and ARCH64 little endian BFD support. While there, I also added uh, the required entry in the ARCH64 uh, GNU AS uh, support upstream as well. Then in September, I got the opportunity to attend the GNU Tools Cauldron 2022 conference, which was held uh, in September 16th to 18th in Prague. Uh, three days of talks and discussions about the GNU tool chain in a friendly and relaxed atmosphere. There was a lot of interesting talks and people, and being able to discuss such topics in person was a nice change. But that's all for now, and he has links to the specific commits that he mentioned. But good to see all the tool chain stuff getting done in uh, package source. Yeah, yeah. Especially since package source means you have access to that in a whole lot of different operating systems. Yeah, especially those that have uh, package source support, which is actually quite a lot. Okay, jumping into Beast Bits this week, we have a post from Undeadly Org that current has moved to 7.2, and of course they mean OpenBSD's current. It's the here we go again department. Uh, with the following commit, Theodorat moved current to version 7.2. Easy enough, dropped the dash beta as the log message. And for those unfamiliar with the process, this is not the 7.2 release, but it's part of the standard build up to the release. It's time to start using dash D snap with package underscore add and package underscore info. Regular readers will know what comes next. This serves as an excellent reminder to upgrade snapshots frequently, test both base and ports and report problems Plus, of course, donate to the OpenBSD Foundation to support these efforts. Very good. Then they have uh, several uh, daemons in slash sbin are now dynamically linked. Uh, with a pair of commits, uh, again, Theodorat changed a bunch of the daemons in slash sbin to be dynamically linked. Uh, first this, uh, which had us a little mystified. We saw modifying some files in etc. Uh, and he says he wants to mount slash usr earlier to satisfy any dynamically linked daemons in slash sbin uh, better than they were before. Uh, and then the follow-up a couple of hours later, where we see dhcp lease d, mount d, nfs d, pf log d, resolve d, slack d, and unwind all get updated. And it says dynamic link these slash sbin daemons. Um, the mitigation story is way better. Syscalls are in a randomly located libc, and every syscall stub is randomly located inside uh, that due to random relinking, as opposed to fixed offsets you get inside the release binary. There is one known consequence. If your slash USR is NFS mounted, it must be a statically configured IP address. With this explanation in place, we look forward to discussions of the security benefits of having all of these sensitive daemons uh, have their randomized libc. Mm -hmm. 
And the last in our Beastie Bits this week is announcing the Package Source 2022 Quarter 3 branch. And so this is the 7th, 6th quarterly release of Package Source, the cross-platform packaging system. And it's available with more than 26,500 packages and supports 24 platforms, of which 10 are currently known to be working. So uh, in this, in total, 167 packages were added, 80 packages were removed, and 1,931 packages were updated. Um, what's new? Updates include 37 Haskell, 65 Perl 5 packages, 414 Python packages, 270 Ruby packages, and 165 text packages. Tech packages. Whew, quite a lot. Uh, this announcement takes a high-level view. Of course, we cannot cover all the little uh, uh, packages in there, but the most notable ones are CertBot, CMake, Emacs, FFmpeg, Firefox, GIMP, Go, Harfbus, and LibreOffice, Matrix, Synapse, Node.js, QMU, Rust, WebKit, GTK, WX, GTK, and YTDLP have all been updated. Yeah. That's good a, stuff. a lot of good work in 24 is a lot of different platforms. No, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, that seems like we are in the feedback and questions section here. And people have been sending us feedback and questions, so we're not empty in here, but definitely keep sending us those to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, Hans is the first one with or about data centers and dust. Oh, that sounds interesting. So that goes. Hi, Alan, Benedict, Tom, and JT. I heard you asking for more questions. I have one non-BSD. I hope that's okay. Sure, let's hear it. I think at least two of you have dedicated rooms in your house for your servers. Uh, yeah, Alan certainly is. <laughs> I have it too. Okay. I think it's safe to say that these rooms are semi-professional data centers as they are equipped by both industrial equipment, servers, and non-industrial equipment, aircon. How do you deal with dust in your data centers? Do you use any non-industrial or do-it-yourself equipment to filter air and catch dust? Uh, dust is the only thing that I can't figure out in my home data center. I've seen servers that are running for years in real data centers and they're completely clean inside. But in my case, they look almost like PCs running under office desks. They're not as bad since rack cases are generally cleaner inside due to better construction, but they're definitely not clean either. Thank you. Yeah, I don't have a great solution to this. I definitely know what you're saying i have seen servers that we pulled out of a data center after it was there for like seven years and there's not a speck of dust in it uh and then you bring it home and it sits on a desk for a week and then it's covered in dust um part of that is uh it turns out people cause a lot of dust <laughs> um the other problem i have in my data center is centipedes oh uh, really they're not getting into the computers but they they like the warmth or whatever and then they i don't know just turn crunchy and there's just centipede <laughs> corpses all over the data yeah, well. Um Mine helps a bit that it's in a separate room that's kind of in a corner and it's in the basement. And so uh, in particular, I've isolated it from the home uh, air conditioning system and it has its own separate. Um, but mostly I've just accepted that, you know, there's going to be dust in the servers and I have to clean them uh, occasionally um, and that it's not going to be nice as nice as a data center. Um, but I don't have any great ideas or proposals for that. Um, you know, you can do some kind of dust filtering, uh, like some of the tower cases I have for like the PC under my desk here actually has a mesh filter that you can take out and clean and put back. And that could be done to the front 
door of the rack, uh, but you want to make sure you don't impede airflow too much uh, because, you know, those, those machines are trying to suck cold air in the front and blow it at the back, and you want to make sure that uh, you're not impeding that, but that could help a bit. Uh, but I don't have any bright ideas, but maybe uh, some other people, because I know quite a few people in the audience have some kind of, you know, equipment room or something, and maybe they have a, a bright idea on how to deal with dust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be good to share some insights and uh, solutions. Okay, thanks for this question. Definitely not uh, something we hear every day, but definitely related. Then there's Tim with a boot issue. Uh, Tim writes, hey, BSD Now team, a recent FreeBSD update to 13.0 release patch level 11 prevented my systems from booting. Ooh, reinstalling the boot code resolved the issue on my daily driver at home. And he lists a forum post on FreeBSD forums. That helped, I guess. However, on my VPS, I don't have boot to install media to run Gpart boot code. All I get is a Debian rescue environment. Is there a way to effectively get the same results as a Gpart boot code using DD on Linux if I can provide the boot code files, slash boot PMB, PMBR and boot GPT ZFS boot to the Linux rescue environment? Yes. Uh, basically, the dash B uh, to the boot code uh, writes the 512 bytes to the first sector. That's where you would do the PMBR. So just DDing the PMBR to the first sector of the disk. Uh, we'll do that. And then GPT ZFS boot, you DD that to the FreeBSD-boot partition. Um, and yeah, as long as you have access to the partitions, you should be able to just DD those two files. That's all GPART boot code is doing. That's the magic, yeah. But it needs those files, yeah, or that little piece of code to get the yeah. system running properly. Just, you know, it's DD, so be very careful and uh, make sure PMBR should be written to the disk and GPT ZFS boot should be written to the partition, not the partition that contains your data, yeah. the FreeBSD-boot partition, which should be 512 kilobytes in size. Yeah, Gpart show-l even for longer. Output. But yes, you very much miss all the FreeBSD tools when you have to use a Linux uh, thingy to, to repair a FreeBSD machine. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, ah, yeah, we have no MFS BSD because, yeah, no boot to install media. Yeah. Right. But yes, a lot of providers do provide, you know, some way to boot into a Debian rescue environment or something. And you can uh, just install boot PMBR and boot GPT ZFS boot with DD in the right places. Mm. Yeah, that should do it. Okay. Thanks for this question. Hopefully it's fixed by now. Uh, and last is Aaron with a DWM tiling uh, question or feedback. Goes, hi, Alan. In a recent episode, if I understood you correctly, you criticized the DWM tiling window manager and suckless projects in general because of their coding style that undermines the solidity of their programs. I would like to ask you what you think of Xmonad. I recently moved to Xmonad from DWM. I like DWM, but wanted to customize it for my special needs. And since I have recently started studying Haskell, Xmonad seemed like a perfect choice. If your opinion happens to be negative for Xmonad as well, could you please point out a similar dynamic tiling window manager that you consider solid? P.S. These episodes are awesome. Thanks for the awesome work you guys do. Kind regards, Aaron. Um, yeah, I don't think you understood correctly because I've never used DWM or Suckless, so I don't have an opinion on them. And the same goes for Xmonad. I don't use a tiling window manager, so I don't really have opinions on them. Um, I remember 
vaguely something about some of these where the configuration was compiled into the program rather than having a config file. And I thought that was a bit odd, but that's about the extent of what I know about this topic at all. Uh, I'm not so big on the window managers in general. I like, I have Lumina and so on on my, my laptop, but outside of that, almost all my interaction with FreeBSD is on headless servers. And so, yeah. Uh, I don't run X very often. I torture my students with I3 in the first lab they have to do in the university, uh, in my university class. And so I let them set up I3 in a very basic form, of course, and let them look at the config file and change a little bit so that they can see what they what they do. And then I explain a little bit what tiling window managers are and how they work in uh, contrast to a mouse-controlled uh, desktop environment. And some people, of course, hate it, of course. And some other people are like, oh, interesting. I never knew I could control the whole Windows environment with, uh, the, whole, with the keyboard. Uh, but again, I don't force anything on them. They can use any other environment. Because, yeah, we have to use a browser later. And uh, I don't want to go actually very uh, down to the, uh, you know, uh, terminal-based browsers. That will be a bit much for them. I don't want to, you know scared them off too much okay yeah thanks thanks for this question i hope that got uh, uh rectified in certain ways so all good here and that pretty much has reached the episode that we have for you today thank you always for listening your feedback also your uh, likes and retweets on uh, the twitters where we always post new episodes that are coming out and if you want to uh yeah let other people know about this episode or other episodes that you liked or uh, BSD Now in general. And then we'll be happy to produce more episodes in the future, like next week. So stay tuned. There's more stuff coming from us as always. And stay yeah, healthy. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>